Hey there, welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer, and you might want to grab a snack, because this episode is all about food, and it definitely made me hungry, both while recording and while editing. But yeah, like it's... This is a really communal activity that we do at home because, you know, it's four New Year's, we're all, we're all home, we're feeding a lot of people, and what my family does is like, so like my mom, me, my sisters, all of my aunts, a couple of our uncles, we'll, we'll just like get around the dining room table, clear it all off, lay everything out and sit in a big circle, and we'll all just sit there and make dumplings, and like my aunts will gossip or like... Give us a, give the younger ones a hard time. Ask me why I'm not married yet. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's it's something that we all do together. And as soon as the littlest ones are old enough to like sit at the table for a little while, just give them a little bit of dough that they can sculpt in and just stuff a meatball in there. It's great. Like, and it's something that you can, you know, get up from. You don't have to sit in one place and do it the whole time. You can do it while you're standing up and talking or doing whatever. It's just like a nice little, I don't know. In early December, folks from all over gathered at the Heinemann Settlement School for Dumplings and Dancing, a weekend of learning and fellowship centered on food and dance. In the dining hall, Oka Lai led a workshop on making Asian dumplings. Do you guess? Same, same, same deal. Yeah. freeze these too? can freeze them? Yes. Beautiful thing about these is once you make them, you don't have to cook them right away. You can just dust them in flour, pop them in the freezer, and once they're frozen, you can just dump them all in a Ziploc bag, and they'll keep for about six months. <laughs> like, and then you can just pop them out, like five minutes in a steamer or in a pot of boiling water, and there you go, dinner. squishes out the end and kind of then the dough doesn't want to stick together. It causes all kinds of problems to do it that way. But um, yeah, so it's just cabbage, onions, salt, garlic, and then meat if you want. And you can also use like vegan crumbles or things like that if you like that stuff, so, which I do. So. Meanwhile, in the cannery, Corey Terry had already taught participants of his sourdough bread workshop how to feed the starter and prepare the dough. You can hear sounds from the main kitchen in the background, where the evening feast was being prepared. table and give you some tension here. So you're going to kind of cut your hands around it and start to pull like that. And you can kind of see it rolling on the top of the dough. That's creating tension on the top. It's going to create that skin, the crust on the top here. 
And this is just the initial shaping of the dough. Uh, we'll come back later and, and shape it into the, the bowl shape that we're making it in. So you'll just do that initially. You can see the bubbles coming up on this. That's, you can see, you feel it and see how airy it is. It's not hard and thick. Uh, that's how you know you got good fermentation going on. You're ready to move on to this step. Um, I wish my bubbles were a lot more pronounced like this guys are, but there's some good ones coming up. It's this kind of stuff that makes me excited. I don't really care to eat it. I just want to see the bubbles and see how pretty it is. Um, so that's the initial shaping. If somebody wants to try it out on these other, other three, um, just I flip it over with the bench knife and then fold it over on itself and then um, sort of rolled it into a ball like this. So if anybody wants to try it, I'll be here to help you. I will try. Yep. This is horrible. It's horrible, Corey. It should be. Okay. <laughs> right right Here's some flour in here. Okay. Yeah, I see just, a bunch of uh -huh. Uh -huh. You need the top to be a little bit of flour. You do the bottom flour. No, flour. Just top. Yep. That way your hands don't stick it to like it. Like kind of All right, here we go. Now the, now the bottom should be sticking to the surface and sort of pulling with it. It is. It just looks like a little baby. Just keep tightening it up really good and that should go away. Do that motion. Tighten it. Yeah. I'm doing this. Pull it, pull it down towards your body. Let it roll into it. Tuck your fingers under a little bit. Yeah. As you're going. Like this. Oh, here we go. Come on. It feels wonderful. It's airy, isn't it? Oh, man. Yes. I mean, this just feels great. I want to keep doing That's good. I am amazed how soothing this is. If you did do that, that motion too much, you would get like a tear on top, which it would be okay. But How's it? might not do that. Probably a little bit good. Uh, it should be okay. That's, that's okay for now. For now. So normally I would let it sit here and rest for about 20 minutes or so, um, but since we're teaching a class, I'm just going to go ahead and do the next step. So that was just the initial shaping of it, um, and then you're going to come back and do a final shaping. So watch very closely, I'm going to let y'all do this. So you're going to flip it over onto the flower side again. And this is how you shape what's called a boule or a boule. I don't know how it's pronounced, I'm not French. Uh, so you can do do this way, and that fits perfectly into these little banneton baskets. And so what you're going to do is sort of grab the bottom of it and let it sort of fall down there and pull. You might need to grab the top and do some too. And then you're going to take the bottom and fold it about halfway up. And you're going to get each side, stretch it out. Fold it in like that, then take the top, that bubble, and then flip it over like that, and then you're going to have the little shape again, and then you're going to start doing that motion again to tighten up the top. Anyone, anybody want to try their hand at shaping? You might need to smack it against the table a little bit to get it to go. Right there. 
I stepped out of workshops for a few minutes and sat down with Brent Hutchinson, director of the Heinemann Settlement School, to learn a bit more about the event. My name is Brent Hutchinson, and I'm the executive director of the historic Heinemann Settlement School, which was founded in 1902 in Knott County. Maybe you could describe a little bit of the year-round programming that happens here. The work of the Settlement School really revolves around three different areas. We do educational work, which focuses on students with dyslexia. We do traditional arts um, educational work in, in the local Knott County schools, as well as an after-school music program and events throughout the year. And then we also do um, community service work, which for us looks a lot like community agriculture. So farmer's market, grow Appalachia, um, things like that. And then I wonder if you could describe for us um, this event that you're having this weekend. The Settlement School is hosting the fourth annual Dumplings and Dancing event, which is part of uh, both our traditional arts programming and our uh, foodways programming. And this event was designed to gather people at the Forks of Troublesome Creek. We believe that there are lots of ways that people gather, but two of the best ways are around food and around dancing. And those are both so much a part of the history of the Settlement School and, and the region. We felt like this an event that really celebrated both of those and highlighted uh, great things that are already part of Appalachia, but are also influencing Appalachia today that we be able to do that through both food and dance and so this weekend is a way for people from around the country to come and to learn there's a lot of hands-on classes and then we celebrate each night with uh, a big dance and um, how has this event changed over the past four years over the past four years, this event's grown a lot, for one. Uh, from the beginning, Chef Wita Michael out of Lexington has been our signature chef. And she's here again this year, but she's surrounded by other chefs in the kitchen, which makes her job maybe a little bit easier. Um, and there are a lot of people who, who want to be here. You know, there are people who are calling us and asking to teach classes or calling us from long distances and trying to figure out how they're a part of something like this. They've never heard of an event like this before. And so what we've seen is that uh, the, the word about the event has spread. People realize that it's unique. There's really nothing else going on in the region like it certainly but really that we know of and uh, we're, we're happy to kind of roll with those times and continue to provide I think really creative interesting programming that feels a lot like home and a lot like grandma's kitchen and continues to pass down traditions but also gives a great update about the new influences in Appalachia like Asian food this year is kind of our focus and, and that's been uh, just a neat part of the last couple of days. Um, yeah so I wonder if you could talk about just some of the like exciting highlights of this year. So this year's event is really capped with um, a keynote tonight by Silas House, who is uh, obviously a very popular author in, from the region, um, but he's also a, a special friend here at Heinemann Settlement School and has believed that his, his investment here is really what made him the writer that he is today, and Silas serves on our board of directors. So we're very happy to have him keynoting tonight. But um, this year we've, uh, we've drawn in a lot of, of new voices um, from, that have Appalachian influence. Um, people all the way from Louisville um, have come to be with us this year too, and we have a new uh, signature chef that's joined Weed, and that's Kristen Smith out of Corbin. And, you know, her restaurant and her farm are just incredible parts of Appalachian cultural life. And to have her in our kitchen alongside Weeda just really lifts that up. So we've been really happy to do that. Um, this year we have um, one of our neat new programs is a partnership with um, the Breadloaf School of English and the Breadloaf Teacher Network out of Middlebury College in Vermont. And so through that connection, there's a group of students who are here to present in just a few minutes, actually, from Fern Creek High School in Louisville. 
and they these are students that go through uh, their sophomore English class is actually based around food literacy and so they're going to be talking about that experience and that experience teaches them to think critically about the world um, through literature but specifically through the eyes and the lens of food and cooking and culture that comes out of that as well as narrative around food and setting the table and sitting at a table and understanding family lore about a table and relationships that develop across the table and uh, so I think that's going to be a real highlight of this year's experience. Great. Anything else you would want people to know or just want to add? Traditionally, this event has been the first weekend of December. Uh, in 2019, it's actually going to be the first weekend of November. So it's a little earlier, and hopefully that um, will be a, a good thing for more people to come and enjoy it. We love everybody to come. Thank you. Brent's mom, Gabby Hutchinson, led a workshop on making German potato balls with Brent's help. You can hear the commercial kitchen fans and oven timers in the background, as well as the sounds of Mrs. Hutchinson toasting croutons in a pan, mixing the potato and flour in a bowl, and the faint sound of boiling water where they will be cooked. And then, um, and then, um, you let them cool, and then, then you peel them, and then you rice them. Why with the skin on? You know, I don't really know the answer to that. I know that when I watched my mother do this stuff, it was always a placebo. Yeah. I think it's because maybe they keeps the starch in. It keeps the starch in, which yeah. is good for the mixture. And also, if you boil them in large in chickens, kind of smallish pieces, yeah. they fall apart when you try yeah. to rice them. Right. They're kind of overcooked. Yeah. Right? The skin protects it. Yep. It's a texture thing, I think. Yeah. When I make my German potato salad, I took my potatoes, put the skins on, okay. and because I know if you look at the recipe, it don't show that. Yeah. It just says, just, you know, cook your potatoes, but I don't. I do it with the skins. I let it cool, and then I cut them down. I guess starting to toast. My husband said to me the other night, because I've been testing these on him the last little bit, and he said, why do Germans have to eat ball potato balls? Why can't they just be fried potatoes? <laughs> he said, it is just too complicated. I, I don't remember ever not having this whenever I lived there. Did you tell them your story at all? My story about what? Mom is a German immigrant. And so she came to the States in, in 55. Um, I came by myself, yeah, her five years here. old, on, it, on an airplane with a stewardess. I mean, the stewardess watched me. I, uh, I threw up on the stewardess, and I threw up on myself, and I threw up on the people who remember to me. So they, they cleaned me up what they said as good as they could. Um, but they didn't do a real good job because whenever I got to see my mom up because I hadn't seen my mother in a year, mom was going like this. She's pushing me back. Okay. So one recipe calls for about an eighth of a teaspoon, doesn't it? So like she said, the dough's a little bit sticky now with the eggs going You don't see that it's well, it's sticky. So you have flour, a little extra flour available and you kind of add about a tablespoon at a time to get it to the texture that you want. And honestly, it's like a lot of things you do with my feel. Um, you want to be able to put it in your hand and come out of your hand without having it sticking to your hand. 
In the Great Hall, Louisville-based chef Lawrence Weeks led a workshop on preparing and cooking fish. So I just take whole trout. I cut off all the fins. So it's uh, nice and one piece, no, uh, no floppies or spikes on it. And I cut the collar off on the top by the head, just because that can be a little chewy also. <clears throat> I take salt, a heavy amount of salt, and salt all of my fish before I cook it. Let it sit for 10 minutes, and that salt's gonna bring out the moisture, especially with the skin on fish. It's gonna bring out the moisture in the skin. Um, you wash that salt off and let it sit in your refrigerator for about an hour. And when I bought this trout, it was already gutted. Mm -hmm. So we can take our mixture of cornbread dressing. This is just cornbread, some sausage, onions, peppers, um, a little bit of chicken stock, and rosemary. And we're just going to lay the fish, the fish flat, get a nice amount of stuffing in there. It's not a wet stuffing, is it? No, you want this to be more dry than a traditional stuffing. Is the sausage cooked? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because that moisture from the fish is actually going to leach out while it's cooking. And you don't want a wet, right. doughy stuffing when you're done. And you can just close it up like that. And it's good to go. You can kind of follow that line, that lateral line in the fish, mm -hmm. and cut off all that belly, but you don't want to cut all the way back where you split the filet. So I'll just use the middle line as a guide. Go down to where the belly ends and then angle my knife tip out. To kind of release it. Right. <laughs> and then this also has a skirt on it at the very top. You can kind of see it mm -hmm. more prevalent. I take that right off. Feel for bones. And this one's pretty good. A couple up top. And you got yourself a boneless filet. Skin on. This is a big old fish, so I'm going to cut it in half. Now I'm going to show you guys how to, um, to skin a fish. So we'll do that same technique and take that belly off. And then there's a layer <clears throat> between the flesh and the skin, which is fat. And that kind, of, that kind of helps insulate the fish. And it also helps you when you're butchering because it gives you um, almost lubrication with the knife so you could slide it through. So you'll start at the tail 
give it a little cut down. Some people like to take their knives and poke all the way through. And it gives you something to hold on to. Yeah. When you go up to fish, angle your knife down. Don't cut through the skin. Once you reach the skin, you kind of angle it out towards the head. And you, without moving the knife at all, you just wiggle the skin and pull back lightly. Angle your knife down so you're not cutting any flesh off. Super clean filet. That's that fat layer between the fish. You could just kind of tease it away with your knife. And you have a beautiful boneless filet. Boneless and skinless. I'm gonna do two more, one of each. I mean, is that fish good to, why, do you like to have it skinless better? Does it, why would you skin it? Just to be pretty? Some people don't like the skin. You'd be surprised. Most How? people don't like the skin. Most people hmm. don't like the skin. Skin's the best part. I agree. <laughs> but also if it's not done correctly, yeah. I don't like the skin to be floppy and, you know, mm -hmm. wet after you cook it. <laughs> But I'll show you guys the proper way to sear a fish and we won't have to worry about that. Fish is less like about. This is not as easy as he makes it look. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about finesse. You're not trying to cut anything away. You're mostly teasing the skin away, getting the bone off of the fish more than cutting it out of the fish. And now we have all three, four preparations, and we can head to the kitchen. We followed weeks into the kitchen where things got fragrant, delicious, and very noisy. Chefs Weta Michael and Kristen Smith were busy preparing the evening's feast along with their team, and the vents were going full force. Once again, just a little bit of salt. Once your oil is shimmering, 
give it a swirl. And then I make sure the oil isn't pulled up so when I drop the fish in, it splatters everywhere. So I give it a swirl to cover the bottom, put it off to the side, drop my fish in, and actually hold it down with my hand to make contact with the band. The proteins in the fish actually want to uh, contract. And the fish will curl up if you don't press it down. So if you're not comfortable with your hand, you're going to take a spatula and just kind of press it down for maybe 14 to 20 seconds. You'll have a nice flat fillet uh, of fish. Lawrence Weeks has an understated presentation style, but I have to say, the trout he prepared with the cornbread-based stuffing is one of the most delicious things I have ever eaten in my entire life. You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer, and in this episode, we're visiting the Heinemann Settlement School for their annual food and dance event, Dumplins and Dancin'. Next up, a description of lunch by participant Bob Thompson. Hey there. Oh, I'm wondering if you would describe what's on your plate. I'm work, I work for the radio station just over in Lefter County, and we're making a story about this event. Oh, sure. Well, we have uh, some homegrown potatoes with the special seasoning, and we have the special bologna chili, and we've got uh, tomatoes grown here in uh, Troublesome Creek area, and fresh sugar cookies, and bunny buns, and we're here at the Hunman Settlement School having a really good afternoon. And where did you travel in from for this event? I live in Hazard, Kentucky. And have you been to this event before? No, this is the first time my wife surprised me with a wonderful plan to have this for our Saturday together. And what class did you take this morning? Did you take a class this morning? Yes, uh, we took uh, the um, beaten biscuits class and the uh, making sausages class. They were both very well done and interesting. I encourage everybody to come out. Great, thank you. <laughs> As you might remember from Brent Hutchinson's comments earlier in this episode, a group of students traveled from Fern Creek High School in Louisville to present about a food literacy class they took. First, their teacher, Brent Peters, who's enrolled in a master's program at the Middlebury Breadloaf School of English, talked about the class from a teacher's perspective. Every Saturday morning, and I'm a real believer in the way that food, is, food and food stories are powerful in the way they bring people together. And I just found out from our group, just across the way, how we have these food stories that bring us together and show how deeply human we all are. So food is powerful and also food is something um, that, that's already there in all of our lives. It's something that we all connect to. 
And so as an English teacher is thinking about, and our theme today is celebrating an education, something that's already there. Sometimes we miss the most obvious things, and sometimes next to the things that are already there are our stories. You know, our story starts today with a class called Food Lit, and it's an English class with a food theme. And food and thinking about how food and English go together, one of the ways that food goes together with an English class is food is story. Food is connection to the world. Food is connection to literature, because if literature is a human story, then humans are going to have some relationship to food, and so food and literature, it turns out, they go together really well. But also, food is a way to form community. And in a classroom, sometimes what we miss out on is those abilities to form a close community, where we feel like we look forward to being in the room and are hungry about coming back to that room and um, want, want more. He then introduced one of the students who joined him. And last year, uh, last November, Keelan and Ryan and Milo all presented about Food Lit at the National Council of Teachers of English, uh, two English teachers, a room full of English teachers, which are like a really difficult audience sometimes, and they absolutely blew it away. And they presented to, the, to English teachers, and I saw English teachers take notes, I saw some tears in their eyes, and I was like, we're doing something here, and it's not us, it's, it's what's already there. All right, we're saying yes to what's already there. And not only are we incredibly proud, but I want to introduce our young people and, and let us get uh, to know each other better. And I want to introduce to you someone really special. Uh, this is Milo Quinn. And Milo is going to be sharing out a bit of his food narrative from his food map, which is the next place. We say, once you have this food map, what's the story on this food map that's about more than food? And Milo said, I got one. I'm gonna be honest, I'm like really scared about being up here, so bear with me. Um, I'm Milo, and um, I'm an alumni of the Food Lit class. And, um, and it was start, starting off, I didn't, have, I didn't really have much of a voice. I always kept to myself, and uh, I, I just didn't think that my work was good, and um, but when we got uh, when we got to the to the food map and uh, we started started uh, like diving into um, into our stories, I chose to write uh, to write about my stepdad and uh, who is unfortunately no longer with us. Um, and in my in my food association with him is um, biscuits and gravy, and um, I, I have the narrative I wrote, uh, and it um, it deals with cancer, and I understand that that cancer could be a touchy subject to some people. So if you want to plug your ears or stuff out for a moment, I understand. But, um, story is uh, The Guilt of Biscuits and Gravy by Milo Quinn. Sometimes I would just join him in this early morning breakfast after I had pulled an all-nighter sitting on the laptop. Those mornings were all the same, sitting near the double-door entrance in a booth with country music playing softly in the background while we had our plastic trays of steaming food sitting in front of us. I would always order soggy pancakes with no butter and a side of bacon. Jim would have two biscuits completely submerged in gravy. Jim sat across from me each time I joined him for breakfast, enabling me to have a good look at his kind face. He was lean, tall, and tan, with a tint of red, cheek, red to his cheeks. 
Jim's gray blue eyes always look tired but soft. What I remember most of who is his guard hands from working day and night as an architect. In late June of 2012, Jim was diagnosed with cancer. He had a tumor in a vital part of his brain and alongside it, lung cancer due to his long years of smoking. He was with my mom when she told me a couple days later. I was 11 and I still don't know how to respond to such a tragedy. I didn't cry or show any emotion at all. I simply nodded and said a quiet okay before going on with life as if nothing had changed. Before Jim was diagnosed, he built an extra garage in our backyard. While it was being built, I remember playing in a large pile of sand and gravel used for concrete. Once finished, the garage took up half of the backyard. I had no problem with it, of course. I never needed much room to play. Now the garage still stands high and mighty, holding, my, holding the many memories I have shared with Jim over the years. My garage was Jim's own man cave that he, that he shared with me. He shared everything in the garage with me. He shared his tools, chairs, his gigantic radio, and the dark board above it. Jim even shared the experience of building. I sat nearby and watched him build a dollhouse, bathhouse, birdhouse, a swing set, and an elevated support with a green slide. Most of the things that he had built were for me. They were signs of affection of the little there were signs of affection for the little boy he helped raise and taught everything he knew. Despite being my father figure, I never managed to call him dad. One day, a while after Jim's diagnosed, I was sitting in the, in the garage on my favorite stool that stood tall with a cushioned rotating seat that let out a shrill squeak whenever he spun. Jim sat in a blue lawn chair that leaned so far back to the point he was practically laying. Although he had lung cancer, he held a cigarette between his chapter lips, blowing smoke through, nostril, through his nostrils like an angry bull. How long do you have, I asked, turning to the top of the stool to face him. Jim paused before he spoke in his deep, gravelly voice. About four years. To me, four years felt like plenty of time. I'm going to miss you. I'm going to miss you too, he replied with a sad smile. Jim's parents began to change a lot to the radiation therapy done to keep the cancer cells at bay. He paled and began to lose weight. His hair had started to fall out, leaving him with long, white, thin hair that he refused to cut. Although he didn't look like himself anymore, Jim would still leave the house if he had the strength to. He'd even go out in the morning for his biscuits and gravy. Eventually he wasn't able to get them anymore. Eventually he stopped leaving the house or getting out of bed. Getting up for daily tasks would exhaust him, but he still managed to take care of his bodily functions. As his condition got worse, hospice got involved. The nurses would only stop by to make sure he died comfortably and to take notes on his condition. I sometimes would curiously watch from them from the doorway of his bedroom. I remember my mom going over the procedure of what to do if something happened to him. We had put his patient information in the hospice phone number on the fridge. She told me to call the number, give Jim's patient ID, and to wait for their arrival. My mom couldn't stress enough for me not to call 911. They'd be required to take him to the hospital and try to help him, but Jim didn't want that. By that point, there was no helping him. The day before August 9, 2015, I was standing in the bathroom doorway. Hospice nurses were in Jim's room, helping him up to his feet and out of bed. My mom stood in the bedroom doorway and I joined her. What's going on? I asked with my brows pushed together. My mom didn't look at me. I taking him away to say bye to Jim. The sad tone gave me the confirmation that Jim was leaving us. Both of us backed out of the doorway and I stood in the bathroom doorway again as Jim was guided up into the narrow hall. Calm dad, it could be all he's ever wanted to hear from me. I opened my mouth but hesitated. Said exactly who, what I didn't want to say as if I had no control of it. Bye, Jim. He didn't say anything. He probably couldn't. Jim shuffled past the bathroom with the nurses and I moved back into my bedroom. I felt that it was too late to fix my mistake. I got angry with myself and I didn't do anything about it. 
I just lay on my bed staring at the starry walls that we had painted together, awaiting the bad news. The next day, Jim had passed. I didn't sit with my mom and cry. Instead, I isolated myself in my room. Even then, I had no idea on how to react. I went on with things, did school without schoolwork without any problem, and I talked to my friends. The only time I showed any sort of emotion to my loss was the breakdown in our classroom to think about him. Now I look back and I feel some emotion, but I still haven't figured out why I never got myself to call him dad. But in the meantime, uh, Ryan was going to come up, share a story of how he had found his voice and decided to use it to help others. Okay, so now we'll get started with this part. And my name is Ryan Peterson, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky. And obviously, first I have one question. That question is, how much does a polar bear weigh? Because it's enough to break the ice. Okay. <laughs> I got into Mr. Peters' food literacy class, and I was in there for a day, and I didn't know where I was, because it was weird. Um, then we went through the class, and honestly, there were times that I didn't understand what the point in anything we were doing was. Like, we did this activity called, that we called Pansomite, where we created our own town, we made our own characters, we dressed up, and we came in and we just acted. And we pretended to be in a completely different town. And to get to this town, you have to grab your nose and your leg and you jump in circles honking. Like, since when is that a class? But by the end of it, I learned something I never thought I even had in me. And I learned how to speak for myself. I learned how to speak, how to, how to verbalize my own thought, my own thought, my own feelings without being rude or disrespectful and being like, no, you're stupid, this is the answer. I was able to actually debate and speak up for myself. And then I slowly started to realize that there was a lot in this class that we learned. It just wasn't just told what we learned. We weren't told that we learned this and then we just learned it and then did it. It wasn't something where it was like, yes, now you can do multiplication, now do it here. Once we learned how to think, we learned how to speak for ourselves, we just did it and it just came with a flow. But then my home life was the different situation. My parents, um, my father got cancer, and my mother had epilepsy, fibromyalgia, and some other things that I didn't believe were real. Um, and they started resorting to popping pills to deal with all of their issues. Everything. Every little thing. So, my home life wasn't very fun. Um, they became very verbally abusive, and even physically at times, they became quite neglectful. But I realized that I still could speak up for myself. I could still put my feelings in there. So when I'd be at home, I wouldn't want to be at home. I'd find anywhere else I could go. My personal favorite place is out in the wild. I am a humongous conservationist and naturalist. I am absolutely amazed and in awe of every one of the living creatures we have here on this planet. And I spent the majority of my time outside in the wilderness, deep in the woods, swimming through lakes, crawling through muddy, anywhere I could find. If I could get outside, I was there. And in school, you know, I, I now know I can talk for myself. I can speak up for myself. I can, I can do that. I have a voice that I realize I have. I just never used it before. In school, I realized there were other kids like me. They didn't know they had a voice. They'd sit in the back of the classroom. they just keep their head down and headphones in in the hallways. They wouldn't talk or interact with anybody, not even the teachers. But then I looked even closer and I realized that not only are there some one out there that can't speak up for themselves, there's something. I realize animals can't, you know, people come in with a development project, 
start cutting out, taking all the food source, taking all the fish out. It's not like a snake's gonna come out and be like, bro, that's my food, what are you doing? <laughs> because they just, they can't speak up for themselves. So I realized if I could advocate for myself and speak up for myself, maybe I can do it for something else. And as an example, this little guy right here, his name is Gizmo, and he's a little sugar guy. He's not too much a fan of much, but he, he came in as a rescue because someone couldn't take care of him. And now, I spoke up when they said they didn't know where he could go, and I was like, I, I'm here, I'll take him, it's a done deal. I'm Keelan Frazier, I came from Fern Creek Pool, Kentucky as the rest of us have. And uh, going into this year, uh, senior year with Ryan, we've been friends for the last almost a decade. Uh, we really started to look back on our time together since elementary school and uh, all classes we've been through, and there's been no class like Mr. Peters' food literacy class. And coming to our sophomore year, there's a situation where we still weren't fully using our brains in most situations. It came that moment where we just would, you know, go off and have some fun. He'd be running around trying to catch up, and I'd just watch him laugh. And um, as he was out uh, catching things, and we go into our sophomore year, we, we got into this class, and we learned that there was a lot more to what we did and how to process things in the classroom. When you have the normal four walls, you're trapped in, um, right from a piece of paper, you're doing articles, reading articles, analyzing, and just following checklists, there's certain situations where you're taking in the information and it's shooting straight out. You remember it to the test, and then straight out of your class. Uh, straight out of the, the class you're doing, then go to the next class, and then you take the test, and boom, you get out of your head, in one ear, out the other. But in this class, it was different. We started to develop more of our thoughts, and that's when our minds really started to develop. That's really what we're going to focus on, is that when we go into food literacy, it's less about the work you're doing, about uh, how to read an article, and how to write a paper. It's more about how to gather your thoughts, and be in the mindset to be able to write. Uh, when I came into the class, everyone thought Mr. Beach was crazy, but we all, we all loved him. And uh, he was the type of person that I could listen about like an hour, talk about why orange is orange. And it didn't make any sense earlier. But later in the class, we started learning, we're developing, we're having arguments, and we started a project. I learned that things are as deep as you let them be. A lot of people say it's not as deep as it seems, but it's, that's not always the case. That when you're in the water, you step to the waters of life. You can stay in the shallow areas, barely brisk by certain issues, but sometimes you just gotta dive deeper and get into issues and really see the deep side of things and how deep things really go. And uh, as a journalist, that's really what I follow in my book in this class, is that there's always a story behind the story, and it's really what I try to work towards. In this class, really start to learn how to start going from one thought, one mind, to-do list, thinking, to our own different minds, and developing our own characteristics. I wish I had recorded the conversations people had about the food as they ate the incredible feast that evening. But it was so delicious, I completely forgot to pull the recorder back out. Weta Michael's chain of restaurants are Kentucky famous, and their reputation reaches far outside the state. And the same is true for Corbin, Kentucky-based farmer and chef Kristen Smith. Smith and Michael prepared the evening meal from food prep during the day's workshops and seasonal local foods. There were dumplings stuffed with greens and pork from Oka Lai's workshop, chicken and dumplings using the German potato balls from Gabby Hutchinson's workshop, salad with fresh goat cheese, pork from Kristen Smith's farm, squash, 
cornbread, and a chocolatey dessert with bourbon sauce to top. There were more things that I can't even remember, and it was all delicious. As guests and participants ate, Kentucky author Silas House read an essay he wrote about pickled bologna. I'm sorry to interrupt your eating, but I'm only going to read to you for about seven or eight minutes. I'm going to read you this little essay. Um, first, I want to say the food was so great. Thank you all so much. for. I know you worked all day for us. So we appreciate you. And um, this is my, I, I love this event, Dumplings and Dance, and I hope everybody will come back next year so we can keep it going. Come for the whole time if you can, not just for the feast, and, and, and be here for the feast too. So mark your calendars for next year. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to read this little essay called The Indulgence of Pickle Bologna. How many of you have eaten pickle bologna? Good. When I'm in other parts of the country, nobody has eaten pickle bologna. So I'm glad that some of you will be able to relate. <clears throat> Dot's Grocery, owned by my aunt, Dot, was the community center of tiny Ferriston, Kentucky. It was a therapist's office, sometimes a church, and always a storytelling school. Everyone gathered there to gossip and to seek the sage kitchen wisdom of Dot. Dot kept a Virginia Slim permanently perched in her fuchsia lipstick mouth and latched her steely blue-eyed gaze on her customers while they spilled their guts and sought her advice. A few times I witnessed prayer services at Dot's Grocery. The epicenter of a largely holiness community was hard-pressed to escape that. There were always the big tails swirling like the twisting smoke of the regular cigarettes. All of them smoked, every single one of them. Looking back, the stories are what matter most. But when I was a child in the 1980s, my favorite things were the cakes and candy wrap, the old-timey Coke cooler with the silver sliding door on top, and the huge jar of pickle bologna that sat on the counter next to the cash register. Beside it were a loose roll of paper towels, a box of wax paper, a sleeve or two of premium saltines, it had to be premium, and a large old hickory brand knife. Cutting pickle bologna was a rite of passage, usually reserved for children who were past the age of 10. That may sound young to wield a butcher knife, but we were country children who had attended hog killings. We had watched the dressings of squirrels, cleaned our own fish, and stood in chairs by the stove so we could learn how to cook gravy. The pickle bologna, submerged in vinegar, was one corkscrew of delicious processed meat. I did not know it then, and wouldn't have cared, that bologna is usually made up of the afterthoughts of pork or beef, organs, trimmings, and the like. All I knew was that it was scrumptious, paired with an ice-cold Dr. Pepper and a handful of premium saltines. Dot indulged me with treats when I came to the store, and I usually asked if, instead of getting a free banana moon pie or a bit of honey, I could opt for pickle bologna. Why, sure, Dot always said, expelling two wisps of blue smoke with her words. 
Besides the taste, which my Uncle Dave said was so good you have to pat your foot to eat it, there was the added bonus of brandishing the knife and sawing off my own piece, proving I was not a little boy anymore. I was an 11-year-old eater of pickled bologna. Pickled bologna was a delicacy in the rural stores of Appalachia, showcased right on the counter where no one could miss it. Most people headed straight for that jar when they were sitting for a spell at Dot's Grocery. Others eyed the jar with desire, knowing they couldn't afford to add it to their bill. Dot's thrived in that last period of the jot em down store. <coughs> jot em down being a small community grocery where local folks could buy on credit. The name referred to the fact that such stores kept a spiral-bound notebook on the counter to jot down purchases. Each customer had their own page, and each month Dot totaled up what they owed. They came in on payday and paid off their debts. Dot seldom turned anyone down for more credit, even if they owed her for months on end. After all, she had opened the store as a single mother to support her, her two daughters. Many people I know now scoff at the very idea of eating bologna, much less pickled bologna. They do not understand that the purchase of such a thing was an extravagance, an indulgence. This was a different time, a different world. I knew no one who went to the movies or shopped just on a whim. These luxuries required a long period of saving. They had to be planned far in advance. <clears throat> We were the progeny of people who had been very, very poor. And although I painted the hamlet of Ferriston as a romantic, bucolic place where people had the live long day to gather around the wood stove and a little store to tell stories, the truth is much more complex. This was a place where poverty existed alongside great wealth. A few yards from Dot's Grocery was a sprawling trailer park occupied by people who worked minimum wage jobs in fast food restaurants or at the Dollar General. Dogs meandered about the dirt yards and children played on the porches while their fathers slept after working third shift or their mothers hung out lines of clothes that flapped in the wind. Just past the trailer park loomed the mansion owned by a coal baron built to resemble Southport from TV's Dallas. Its opulence proclaimed, we made it, you did not. The house was a few miles from the massive strip mine that destroyed that part of our county. The riches pulled from the mine by my people built the manor, but no matter. The Baron had a three-car garage, and 12-foot pillars flanked the front porch. I am sure that the people in the South Fort Mansion didn't serve pickled bologna hors d'oeuvres at their parties. But for people raised like my parents, pickled bologna was a symbol of attainment. When she bought one of the gallon jars, my mother would return from the grocery with excitement. As children, she and my father had never been allowed such indulgences. Both grew up in the sort of poverty people always associate with Appalachia. Still, they were quick to tell you they had never, ever been hungry. Country people were good at providing food for themselves, whether by growing it, bartering for it, or making it stretch. Snacks were rare and sniffed of affluence. 
By the time I was a child, my parents had worked so long and so hard, they had firmly rooted us in the middle class. We did not have a house that looked like J.R. and Sue Ellen's, but we had recently left the trailer park and moved into a small five-room house with a grassy yard dotted by pink-blossomed dogwood trees. Buying pickled bologna, which might be considered the lowest of foods, meant something to my family and our community. Every once in a while, I still get a terrific craving for pickled bologna. I eat it with a strange mixture of guilt, because I know what's in it, and delicious nostalgia for a place and time that is gone forever. Food is more than merely taste or nourishment. In Appalachia, food is memory and heritage. Today, when I cut a hunk of meat off that corkscrew, when I draw in the sharp fragrance of vinegar as I peel off the casing and take a bite, I remember the customers in Dot's Grocery, their joys and sorrows always on display. I recall afternoons spent with my father after he woke up, before he left to work the third shift. I remember my Aunt Dot, gone now, and the way she cared for the whole community, provided a place for them, jotted down their purchases, and sometimes wadded up a whole sheet of debt when she realized the family was doing all they could to support themselves. That way of life is gone now, and I miss it so badly in all of its awfulness and all of its beauty. The evening wrapped up with Randy Wilson teaching square dance to a group containing experts and beginners alike.
That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk, featuring sounds from the early December Dancing and Dumplings event at the historic Hindman Settlement School in Hindman, Kentucky. To learn more about Dumplings and Dancing or the Settlement School, find them online at www.hindmansettlement.org. That's H-I-N-D-M-A-N-S-E-T-T-L-E-M-E-N-T dot org. If you liked what you heard and want to share this episode with a friend, you can find it and our archive of past shows on our website at WMMT.org or download Mountain Talk as a podcast from SoundCloud or Stitcher. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio. And in this case, it was really tasty radio to make, too. <laughs>